You're listening to Anxiety Talks with Amanda Huggins. The intersection of science and spirituality, where we have real, honest, and often esoteric conversations about mental health and personal growth. Hello, you guys, and welcome back to another episode of Anxiety Talks with Amanda Huggins. I'm Amanda Huggins, and I am joined today by my dear friend, Niaz. Niaz is a former client. She is a coach in her own right, a holistic nutritionist. She also has a certification in thyroid yoga, which I want to talk about. And she's just, on top of being incredibly well-studied and well-informed, she is one of the most kind and compassionate coaches that I know. I'm so excited to have her here. And we're going to use our combined awarenesses, me coming from anxiety, personal growth, spiritual growth, and Nia's coming from really a lot of those same places. But I, I want to integrate her understanding and her background and her training about nutrition and holistic nutrition, really want to integrate that into what we're talking about today. So Nia's, how you doing today? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. So I did a little intro for you, but I feel like you can do it much better than I can. Tell us about you and your background and your story. Amazing. I mean, I think that intro was perfect, but I'm happy to paint color to it also. (laughs) So yes, my name is Niaz. I'm a holistic nutritionist, a nourishment coach, a thyroid yoga practitioner, a yoga teacher, meditation teacher, all the things. My journey or my story really came from me being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease about 11 years ago. And it was along that journey that I started to learn all the different modalities that would be best beneficial and would make the most sense for me and my journey and healing myself and healing my body, both on a physical aspect and also on an emotional and energetic a spiritual aspect as well too and our I guess like you and I our paths kind of cross sort of halfway through that journey for myself because I like to say that the first half of my journey was more or less taking care of like the physical tangible symptoms of what I was experiencing and all the imbalances that were happening in my body but more or less the second half or rather the past like five six years of my healing was looking deeper into my internal landscape and my internal dialogue and working with you and then kind of going along my own journey of exploring other ways and other modalities that would best be, that would make the most sense really, that would kind of help paint the picture and create a really encompass holistic approach to healing for myself. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, isn't all. I mean, like what an intro, right? Every type of yoga (laughs) background in nutrition. And I really love, and I know this is newer phrasing for you or new-ish, but calling yourself a nourishment coach. I love that word nourish because it encompasses so much more than just food and what we put into Mm -hmm. our body. It's like everything, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny because, so I'm Iranian, that's my background. And there's a phrase in Farsi that says nushajun, which basically means may it nourish your soul. And it's usually a saying that we give to people. Let's say I have you over for dinner and I make you dinner. And then you tell me like, oh, my God, Nia's, this meal is amazing. Thank you so much for making it. My response would be nushajunet. Like may the food nourish your soul. But we've even we've even used it in other phrases or other circumstances where like, let's say I'm on a vacation and I'm you know, basking under the, under the sun or whatever, you know, whatever the scene might be. I could even use it then to be like, oh, Nusha Juna. It's like, I hope it nourishes your soul. So I've always loved the word nourish the same way. And so I started noticing that I was using the word just interchangeably so much during my practice and in talking to my clients. And I'm like, you know, 
like you said, it's not necessarily just about food. It's not necessarily just about nutrition, but it could also be the way that you're living your life and the lifestyle habits that you have that are also nourishing your soul. So I kind of gave myself the title, (laughs) but it made the most sense for what I'm so passionate about. I love it. It makes so much sense. And there's such a, a warm, like inviting, comforting vibe to it. And I think especially now when we're in, we're in, and you and I have had so many side conversations about the damage of social media or the potential damage sometimes. There's so many like fitness influencers and there's so much diet culture. We're also seeing the rise of anti-diet culture, but still there's, there's a lot of like food only in air quotes direction out there that it's, it's so nice and refreshing, not just to hear you say, hey, it goes beyond just food, it's quality of life. But I also know that you practice what you preach. And so I kind of want to, you know, you got into at least at a high level your story with or what is the right phrasing? Because I was going to say your story or your struggle with autoimmune. But yeah, is that the appropriate way to say that? I mean, it. I guess it kind of depends on your relationship. So like my relationship to the disease itself, I prefer the word story versus struggle because I feel like struggle still has a very negative connotation to it. I I think the stigma could be broken down, and I think that just takes time. But I myself don't like to be, I don't like to slap the word like struggle or disease or ailment or, you know, all those different words that in the past for myself, especially when I was first diagnosed, I was told stories of like, your body's attacking itself. Your body's going against its normal harmony. Like these different phrases just make make those words feel really icky. So I like to say story or journey or, you know, any other word that kind of falls underneath that umbrella. Yeah. And you and I are of very similar beliefs that words really, really matter. And when it comes to autoimmune diseases, it's this larger reminder, I would imagine, that you are not your disease. It is something that is present in your life. And when we remove that phrasing of struggle or that it's like full identity, I I imagine that creates a lot of space for you to actually work with what is coming up in your body and then what is coming up in your mind and that that feedback loop there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's definitely like a huge part of my story, too, is that languaging and that conversation that I'm having both internally and also externally with others, but more or less internally, because like I said, when you're given a diagnosis like that and you're told your body's attacking itself and you kind of swallow and digest those words, it's like everything else that kind of comes into the foreplay of your life just immediately feels really icky and it doesn't feel right. And you start storytelling even more. And for myself growing up and I had so much anxiety and I didn't know how to navigate through it. I just kind of took that as like, well, that's just the kind of person that I am. Like my body's attacking itself and I also have anxiety. It kind of goes hand in hand, but it doesn't have to, that doesn't have to be the end story that that can just be an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. You know, that phrase, your body is attacking itself. It comes up so much when we're talking about any autoimmune disease. And I want to, I want to get your honest thoughts on this because I always wonder if it's a reduction to just say like, oh, your body's attacking itself. Like what else is actually going on there? And what from your background and what you know about your journey, how much of, of that your body is attacking itself actually has to do with the mind? Ooh, good question. So 
on a biological standpoint, your body is essentially attacking itself. So you, when you have an autoimmune disease, it, it means that your body is creating excess immune cells against your good cells. So your body is seeing different pathogens or different, you know, immune cells or whatnot come into your body. And rather than it seeing it being seen as something that's beneficial, it attacks it. So for myself personally, having thyroid autoimmunity, my body sees thyroid hormone as the invader. And so it attacks them, whereas my body's not necessarily supposed to be doing that. It's supposed to see them and be like, no, those are good hormones. We're taking those in and we're we're not going to create infl- excess inflammation in the body. So when something like autoimmunity or chronic illness comes up, it's usually a cause of deeper systemic inflammation. And deeper systemic inflammation can also create or exacerbate symptoms, mental symptoms such as anxiety, such as depression, and other sort of like mind health matters as well, too. So it's very much connected. And I know you and I talk about like the mind gut connection so much, but it's very much connected that if there's something happening on an internal landscape, as far as the gut is concerned, as far as inflammation is concerned, that it very well could also affect the mind and also vice versa. If there's something on the mental landscape that's happening, it can very well steam and stem from the gut as well too there's that huge connection there via the vagus nerve and all of that as well too so they definitely play a part there's a big feedback loop between the two of them totally that that makes a ton of sense so what what do you think then about like this phrase gets tossed around a decent amount which is that autoimmune diseases are stress-created illnesses do you think that's like 100 true not not at all true like where do you kind of land with that I think it's it's true if you look at stress as a huge umbrella. So I feel like when you look mm. when you read the word stress, the first thought that's that usually comes to mind is like psychological stress or stress from lifestyle, stress from events, stress from opportunities, but stress can also be nutritional deficiency. It can also be an infection, it can also be unstable blood sugar, it can be inflammation, it can be a genetic mutation. Like there's so much on the other side of stress, that that's why I like to think of stress as like a big umbrella term, which makes it more complex when you think of it that way. But it is a very complex word. It's not just a one size fits all or one word definition. So yes, I do think that it is absolutely stemming from stress, but where the stress is coming from, that could be a whole host of things, which is why healing from autoimmunity can take so much time because there's so many areas to look into, which is why also it's very overwhelming and why a lot of people kind of fall into that space of like, well, there's nothing that I can really do about it. Like, it's just just seems like so much work and it's exhausting and it takes such a long time for some people to come to that place where they are in remission, where things are really stable. I mean, I myself, it's taken me quite a number of years to kind of reach this place of homeostasis, but I I knew that I wanted to heal myself and I would do anything that I could and go as long as I needed to to kind of figure out what that looks yeah. like. but. It, that's why it's such an exhausting um, journey for a lot of people. Well, the, that, that was going to be my exact next question, which is like, I, I agree with you, by the way. I think that it's, it, it makes a ton <laughs> of sense to lump stress in as like an umbrella word. And then there's so many. Other, yeah. It's the same thing as anxiety, right? Is anxiety right. the way that I work with it is it's an umbrella term. And then what's underneath it? Is it fear? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Is it grief? Like, and there's so many different directions. And for anxiety clients specifically, and I would imagine for your clients as well, it's usually not just one thing. It's usually not just shame that a client is working through. It's forgiveness and it's past trauma and it's all of this other stuff. So 
you know, where does someone start? Actually, let's phrase it like this. Where did you start? How did you start figuring this out for yourself? Yeah. The first thing that I can think of, which it's, I laugh because it's what I do now, but the first place that I looked at was nutrition because it was the most tangible thing that I could have a little bit of control over. And I knew that if I looked at nutrition, looked at the foods I was eating, I could at least address that in the first place. I was already put on medication. So that was already like there to kind of help suppress my symptoms that I was experiencing. But I knew that like the foods that I was putting in my body, let's kind of take a look at that and see whether or not they're supporting me, not supporting me. So cleaning up my nutrition, cleaning up the foods that I was eating, looking at foods I was sensitive or allergic to and taking those out of the equation. That was definitely like the first place I started. And then I didn't really dabble into like mindfulness, meditation, slow movement, I didn't really look into any of that or become super curious about any of that until probably, genuinely, I want to say probably like six years ago, like five or six years ago. It really wasn't that long ago. And the reason for that, one could be because I was so young when I was diagnosed. I was 19. And so I, I don't think meditation or anything like that was really mainstream for me to be super curious about it. And two, because I, as somebody, I can speak for myself at least, like as somebody who wanted to just heal as quickly as I possibly could. I wanted to do the things that I knew would change and help me change overnight. So something like nutrition was something that I knew that like, okay, well, if I didn't have this bowl of ice cream tonight because I'm sensitive to dairy, my stomach is going to feel a lot better tomorrow versus like if I do a meditation right now, I may not feel the benefits of it tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like it's not like in a very immediate okay. reaction. So yeah, I didn't start looking into it until probably five or six years ago when I, when all the physical, tangible stuff that I could do as far as like cleaning up my nutrition, supplementing where I needed to, cleaning up any toxic buildup that I had, mercury or metal overload that my body had, anything that was more or less diagnostic and taking care of that. And then once I realized like, I feel like there's a deeper part of myself or a deeper route to everything that I'm experiencing, like, why did this even come up in the first place? Like, why did I get sick in the first place? And it was then that I realized, like, oh, maybe I should take a look at my mind health <laughs> and yeah. take a look at what's happening underneath the hood. <laughs> yeah, it's, you You make a really good point, And I certainly identify with that. I know listeners will, too. It's like, you know, everyone wants a quick fix or... Yeah a somewhat immediate fix. And the, the cool thing about when you're working with something tangible like your body is, to your point, you can actually do things daily that you can measure progress on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really cool. You get that feedback with practices like mindfulness, meditation, working to understand your anxiety and unpack that. A, that's, that's the long game, man. And then B, it's not fun. Like, it's just, it's just not, I've said that on here before. It's a beautiful process to start working with your mental health and learning about yourself, but it certainly comes with a shadow. And often there is not like a crazy immediate payoff, which I know I'm really not selling mental health right now, you guys, <laughs> but I promise it, it long-term, it is worth it. It is a long game. It is worth it. So talk to us, let, let's actually sell taking care of your mental health. Yeah. What did you, what did you learn about your journey or? How did your holistic health improve as you started to kind of dive into yourself? Yeah. So I like to tell this story because it's it's one of those experiences that it's it's so ingrained in my brain because it was honestly the very first time that I realized like, oh, can I curse on here? Yeah. 
you can. I was like, oh shit, I really should like <laughs> go a little bit deeper into this. And it was, it was like seven years ago. I think it was seven or six years ago. And it was my very first yoga class. It was like a 75 or 90 minute yoga class in New York City. I don't remember the name of the studio, but it was a very small studio in Brooklyn that I just happened to like walk by. And I'm like, that sounds cool. Like yoga I hear is good for you. Let me just give it a try. And I went into this 90 minute class, didn't realize it was like a level two or level three class. I just signed up for this class. And I remember the entire 90 minutes just being like, are we going to move to the next posture? Like, why are we holding this post for so long? I was like, okay, I'm holding it. Like, okay, I'm breathing. Get it. On to the next thing. And then I remember like going into Shavasana and the Shavasana was probably, it was probably like a 10 or 12 minute Shavasana. It was amazing. Like I'm all about that now. But I remember laying there being like, are we done? Can I get up now? Like, why are we still laying here? And it was during that after that class was over and I was walking home, I'm like, why was I fighting against that so much? Like, why is it that I needed to move on faster? I knew the class was 90 minutes. Like, why was I trying to make it go by in 10 minutes? What What is going on? What is my fight there? I went back like oh, two days later to take another class. And I was like, I'm just going to drop into this a little bit deeper and like, just let me just give it another go. And I gave it another go. And I was a little bit more gentle about it. I still was like, okay, this is taking really damn long. Like, why is this class taking such a long time? But it was during that 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 stage where I became so curious about like, well, why am I trying to speed this up so much? Why is my brain moving so much faster than my body is moving? And so I realized like I don't have a very good connection between my mind and my body. They're moving at two completely different speeds. So I sort of like took that experience and tucked it away and I started practicing yoga. I started going to different studios. I started to explore like reading books and listening to podcasts about meditation and mindfulness, at least just like feeding my curiosity. But it wasn't until about what well, you and I met, like what was that, like four years ago or four something? Years ago? Four years ago? I think so. Three or four years ago. Wild. So wild. And it was then that I fell a lot deeper into all these practices and I started to try to implement them that I said to myself, like, I really need somebody to help me navigate what is going on in my head versus what is going on in my body, because the two of them are not talking to each other the way that I know that they should be or that, that, that I know that they can benefit from one another. And I had tried traditional therapy in the past, but I personally just wanted to talk to somebody who I could relate to on like a almost like a friend level that didn't feel super formal, that was really casual because I knew that that wasn't going to be intimidating for me. I always thought like, mm -hmm. that's how I trick people. I'm like, oh, let's, it's going to be casual. Like, we're just going to maybe talk about your mental health. And then I'm like, okay, go into the shadow and figure oh. your shit out. And I remember our first session, I was like, I don't think I can do this. This is crazy. But, <laughs> you know, here we are later. And I loved it. And now you're and a coach. I would do it all over again. Yeah, now I'm a coach. Yeah, so then you and I met through a mutual friend. And I remember Michelle our Michelle on Shout the podcast. Shout out. Love her. And I remember our first session, you told me, you're like, I need you to tell your loved ones like the work that you're going to be doing with me because it's going to get really ugly. And I was like, what are you actually talking about? Mm -hmm. I was like, no, like I have anxiety. It's coming from like my family. I already know where it's coming from. Just like help me figure it out. And you were like, mm, no. I need you to let your family know. I need you to let your loved ones know because this is about to get real, real deep. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I remember like telling them, I'm like, yeah, I signed up to do this work with this girl. Like, she's a coach. She's going to help me and da, 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 da. 
And then, like, you know, lo and behold, years later, I'm like, oh, damn, that was intense in, like, all the best ways. And I could not have imagined, like, trying to navigate through all that by myself. One, I don't even know how to have done that. But just having somebody there to help facilitate those conversations that I was having and help me to kind of make that connection between mind and body was so pivotal. And I really do. I've told you this a thousand times, but I I have so much gratitude for that work that we did together because truly like that was that was a huge breaking point for me in my healing. And that really helped set me off to to look into other modalities, too. So (laughs) I'm not going to turn this into a love fest for for everyone listening, but. What I will say is it, it has literally been so inspiring to watch Niaz's entire journey, like from when we first met and were complete strangers to now where I feel beyond proud and honored to call her a colleague. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm not your coach anymore. We're colleagues. And it's, it's really cool because you bring such incredible depth and awareness and a different flavor in terms of like what you've studied to Really, what at the end of the day is very similar work between you and I. It's listening to mind and body and looking for the spaces where there are disconnects. And, you know, I remember, so you said two things in that last chunk that connect was this need to speed up, right? And it's so funny because yoga is such an, a fantastic entry point for a lot of people for doing the inner work because it does exactly that. It's like, you're forced to actually be with yourself. You, I mean, yes, you could technically get up and leave, but most people, especially if you're anxious, you're like, I can't leave because then everyone's going to be looking at me. So you wind up being <laughs> trapped in a yoga class for 90 minutes and you learn a lot about yourself. And there is this desire that many people, myself included, face where it's like, oh, I just want to get this done. Like, I just want to move through it. I just want to run somewhere. Might not know what I'm running towards, but I do know that I want to run away. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you brought up when I encouraged you to share what was coming up for you with your family. That's not something like that's that's not band-aid advice for every client, but what Niaz and I were working on together, there was there was just ownership and there were conversations that needed to be had and that those conversations were going to be a piece of the freedom that Niaz was going to be able to access. And so I love that you said cuz that that again that's my shtick it's like oh we're cool and casual and then oh that thing that you've been running away from for so long (laughs) that you've been speeding through we're gonna slow down and actually do that work uh which is deeply uncomfortable listen I don't teach or suggest anything that I haven't done or practiced myself um that is very important to me it's also why I refer clients to you when someone asks me <laughs> nutrition stuff. I'm like, I don't know. Go talk to the one who actually knows what you're talking about. But anyway, that process sucks sometimes. And then yeah. space opens up and mm-hmm. you learn about yourself and you start to, you know, the way that it showed up for me was I felt like I started to land in myself. My, my mental health um, at the time struggles, I would say weren't entirely gone within like a couple months of me doing inner work, but I felt so much more confident that I could work through it and that I was growing, you know? So I'm, I'm really curious to that point, like as you landed in yourself and you were like, okay, I'm starting to get this and I'm creating so much more of this freedom and understanding for self. I know because you're a person 
and you're a woman and you you give so much, I know or can assume with pretty great certainty, you've probably had moments of anxiety since or, you know, and perhaps maybe this is a good place to talk about thyroid eye disease, but like I know that things have come up for you that certainly could have thrown off your stability and self. So how do you work through like the ups and downs even when you're in a place where you're in air quotes, feeling good or feeling better? Like, what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm human. I definitely still have bouts of anxiety come up, but they don't, one, they don't feel as out of body as they used to. And two, they don't feel as, as like lengthy as they used to. So I remember like when I would fall into these spaces of having the most anxiety that I would ever experience, it felt like my body was completely disconnected from myself. I would be in them for it what felt like hours it was probably minutes but what felt like hours i would lose control of my breath like it was completely disconnected versus now when i do cuz i do when i do have moments that are more or less anxiety provoking what i've really learned and taught myself to do is to pause and slow myself down because i'm i'm somebody by nature even growing up i have moved at a very fast pace i used to talk really fast i would walk really fast like everything that i did was with speed. I just wanted to like speed things along because I would get so anxious about why it was taking so long to get to the end point in the beginning. So I know that like, well, that's my opposite. That's me falling into a space of really high anxiety versus I know that to slow myself down is going to help to slow my response down in a big way too. And then also help to slow down and calm any sort of physical symptom that I'm experiencing due to the anxiety because of that gut brain connection too. When I do experience anything that's more or less anxiety provoking, the first thing that I do is close my eyes and I touch my body. So I touch my, either my hand to my heart or my hand to my stomach. And I'm like, okay, what are we feeling? This is what we're feeling. I identify it. I'm like, it's coming from this. I'm like, okay, well, you just made that entire story up because that's not true or whatever the case might be. But I start to just talk to myself, which is something that you taught me to do was to talk out loud to myself. So I start to talk to myself and then I start to come to my breath and I'm like, okay, your breath is not really there. So let's just connect to the breath, deep belly, deep belly breaths, deep belly breaths out. And I just have really learned to slow myself down to really answer your question, which has played a huge part in my my ability to respond to circumstances or to stimulants that would otherwise have put me in a space of wanting to speed myself up. And that's something that I teach my clients to do now too, because I do work with a lot of people who have autoimmunity and who have a history of the same thyroid condition that I also have. And for a majority of them, anxiety is very, very much a primary symptom. So teaching them to really slow themselves down. I, I like to say like pause, observe, and then provide. So pause, observe what's going on, what's happening in the landscape, and then provide whatever it is that you need to provide for yourself, whether it's that. going for a walk or taking a drink of water or you know doing a breathing meditation or whatever it might be. But that ability to really slow yourself down, it's it sounds so simple and it comes with practice, but it mm-hmm. really does pay in dividends so, so, so much. Today's episode is brought to you by Sensate, profound relaxation in under 10 minutes. I'm a big fan of science and technology, and I'm also a big fan of the woo-woo stuff. We know this. So anything that combines the two is like the perfect center of my personal Venn diagram. Sensate is a palm-sized piece of technology that you place on your chest while you relax. 
The sonic resonance and vibration of the tool helps to take the body out of fight or flight, so the mind has space to meditate. Pop in your headphones, listen to some soothing music, and take a couple of deep breaths. Super cool tool. Recommend you guys check it out. If you're interested, visit www.getsensate.com and use code AMANDA for $25 off your purchase. Yeah, I really identify with that, that that anxious drive to just have things done faster. And obviously the question that that is underneath that desire is like, what are you doing? Like, what are you (laughs) rushing towards? And, And, you know, while I wasn't aware of it at the time when I was still in tech, that was that was like a big missing piece to my anxiety or healing my anxiety. I was like always trying to get more work done and like get more work done and answer more emails. And it was like, Amanda, the emails are never going to stop like until you are done working. And even then the emails are never going to stop. So it really, it really then becomes on us to be the boundary setters for ourselves. Or as I like to say, you have to be a, a fierce defender of your needs, a fierce defender of your balance. You know, one of my favorite phrases, I think I've said it on here before, but slow down to speed up. You know, we, you actually get more done for yourself when you take a more mindful approach to how you're doing things. And my anxiety self, my anxiety-ridden self, I remember when Melanie, my coach, had shared that truism with me and I was like, bitch, no, speed up to speed up. You don't know what you're talking about. I, I like literally could not wrap my head around it because it was so foreign. And there's a lot of discomfort that can come up when you are in the act of slowing down. To your point, you know, simple in concepts, but it is not easy in practice. So what would you say to someone that's listening and is like, yeah, okay, I get it. You need to slow down, but it sucks. And then I'm more anxious when I slow down. Oh, I mean, it comes with a lot of practice. I I hate to say it and I wish I had a simpler answer, but that is when the transformation or that shift happens is allowing yourself to really slow down and to get really uncomfortable, to get comfortable being really uncomfortable. That's another big lesson that I've had to learn because otherwise you're just going to move at the same speed that you have been. And How's it going for you? Probably not so great. (laughs) So I know that it's so uncomfortable to be in a place where you are having to slow yourself down and be observant of your body and what you're experiencing. But if you don't take the time to do that, like I talked about in the beginning with my story about yoga, like your body is always going to start moving faster or your mind is going to start moving faster than your body. And that's going to be a huge disconnect. And over time, that's going to start manifesting into more physical symptoms. And then that's not going to feel so great either. So if you're super dedicated and passionate and want to have that change happen, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that comes in that process of allowing yourself to slow down. Yeah, I totally agree. And something that I offer clients is like, what is is your carrot at the end of the stick, right? Because knowing Mm -hmm. that there is a lot of discomfort that comes with you know, slowing down and, and starting to look at your mental health, you've got to have a really clear why, which I know is like annoying to hear. There's like a million books out there. Start with why and this, that, and the other thing. But really what you're looking for is a feeling. So who, and you and I have done this work together, who, who are you and how do you feel when you've worked through this? And so you do that like 
proactive envisioning. So to make that really clear, like when I was really, really struggling with anxiety and it was body image, finances, career, relationships, relationship to self, like it was all across the board, was not a happy person inside at least. So why was like, well, I want to show up and not be afraid of my day. I want to show up and like not just get things done, but also know that walking away feels good too. Like closing my laptop feels good, that I can engage in social settings and not feel weird. Like, and the more I thought about who that person was and how good that was going to feel, that became like a really worthwhile why to commit to, to sit through the discomfort. You know, timeline hopping is sometimes what it's called, quantum leaping. It's all the same thing. It's like starting to think about who are you when you move past the stuff that you're working on now. Can you envision or even feel into that a little bit? That actually, I think, and I don't know about you, Nias, but I think that actually can be fun work to take a pause on the deep digging and instead project a little bit into the future to be like, oh, wait, yeah, that's why I'm doing all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Coming back to that yeah. purpose. Oh, yeah. I love that kind yeah. of work. It's fun. That's like a that I, that I feel like is like the water break, you know, when you're when you're doing some yeah. deeper digging. It's like, okay, but let's <laughs> let's remember why we're doing this. We're not just trying to drag ourselves. That's like the, it's like the storytelling that I like to, to tell myself. Like those are the stories I like to tell or the ones where I'm envisioning like who exactly I want to yes. be in X amount. So I was when I was yeah. teaching yoga, I, I like to say I'm a retired yoga teacher. At this point, sadly, I miss it every single day. But um, I would say something like that in Shavasana. I'd be like, listen, man, I'm not going to tell you to like let your mind not have thoughts. If you can get there today, great. If you fall asleep, great. But if your mind is going to wander, just direct it towards good things, right? Because typically when we close our minds or close our eyes and our mind wanders, we go to the problems. And so that can be fun work. It's like, oh, remember daydreaming? Like, remember imagination? <laughs> Let's actually play with that instead of of letting our mind kind of haphazardly wander into not the shadows, but the spins, which aren't really all that helpful, you know? So yeah. I, I want to go back to something because you and I have had quite a few offline conversations about this, and you've mentioned it quite a few times already, which is the mind-gut connection. And you know way more about this than I do, which is the foods that you put into your body have an effect on your mental health. I understand that like at that level. And I just try to eat like right. fairly clean-ish. Although I definitely like I texted Niaz yesterday. I was like, I never break out of my chin. I broke out of my chin. Like what's going on? She was like, it's stress and hormones, Amanda. Like <laughs> you need to calm down. So you're obviously the expert here. Let's just cast a wide net. What does it mean yeah. uh, in terms of anxiety? Like talk to us about the mind-gut connection. What's that all about, my friends? All right. So your gut responds to emotional signals from your brain and vice versa. So I know that like you talk about this a lot where when you ask somebody where they're feeling anxiety and they kind of are stumped as to like, what do you mean by where? But like where in your body are you actually physically feeling anxiety? It's because of that mind-gut connection. So I know personally I feel anxiety usually in my stomach or in my chest. Depends on like what the anxiety is for, but usually it's the stomach or the chest, most likely the stomach, more or less the stomach. So yeah, so it's that connection between the two of them. They're connected via the longest nerve in the body called the vagus nerve or the vagal nerve. It's a 10th cranial nerve. It extends from the brainstem all the way down to the very um, bottoms of the abdomen. And this nerve is responsible for the regulation of your internal organ functions, such as digestion, your heart rate, your respiratory rate, 
all three things that are affected by anxiety when somebody has a bout of anxiety. So digestion, you might get those stomach knots, the butterflies in the stomach, the like anxious poops or whatever. I, I get those. Oh, I see. <laughs> but this fast heart rate, yeah, the fast heart rate, the inability to really catch the breath. So the respiratory rate is going to be affected as well also. And it's usually caused by either an emotional or physical stress. So when the vagus nerve is kind of set off kilter, it's because of something that might be happening, whether it's internally or externally in the landscape of things. Gut health particularly, it has implications that go kind of beyond just like healthy digestion. So the state of our gut health can also regulate our mood because of serotonin production. It can regulate our immune response. It can regulate the predisposition to either weight gain or weight loss. So it's affected by so many different factors that can happen or happen throughout the life or throughout your lifestyle, which is so fascinating and also so complex, but that's what makes it so fascinating as well too. So it's kind of like the simplest way is to just think of the gut's responding to the brain, the brain's responding to the gut, and there's this feedback loop that happens back and forth. And when you are able to calm one down, you're able to calm the other one down as well too. And when they're out of balance or disharmony, that's when you might feel something like anxiety or you might feel something like a really bad stomach ache or nauseousness. Like that's usually when there's an imbalance between the two of them. Fascinating. That is like 17 layers deeper than my original understanding. So thank you. So so let's say, let's say someone is, they're just having a bad mental health week. So it's more than a couple hours, more than a day. They've been doing the tools. Maybe there's a, a trauma or something that they're like actively working on. So the mind or the mindfulness, I should say, is being tended to. What should one do in terms of nutrition? Like what what is a good starting point to like start supporting that mind-gut connection? So foods that are going to be anti-inflammatory are always going to be the best bet to go towards. So foods that are, so to answer the question in a way that's a little bit simpler, foods that are inflammatory, those are things like Usually it's gluten for most people, Uh, not for all, but for most people it can be. Again, not for everyone, just for some people, especially if you have autoimmunity or chronic illness, it's probably a food that's going to be inflammatory. Processed sugars, processed foods, packaged foods, GMO foods, like the foods that that are in a package container. Microwavable foods, foods that are like loaded with salt or inflammatory oils like canola oil or, you know, corn oil or grapeseed or rapeseed. Those are the foods that are going to cause excess inflammation in the body. And when there's excess inflammation in the body, it doesn't affect just the stomach. It's going to also affect the brain. It's going to affect the systemic system. It's going to affect all the different functions of your body as well, even hormones like you and I were talking about yesterday when you text me. So it's focusing on foods that are going to be anti-inflammatory is going to be super supportive for helping to address those symptoms that you might be experiencing. So herbs and spices like two of my favorite things that I love to incorporate into my foods throughout the day. So some of my favorites include something like ginger. Ginger helps to control the levels of cortisol in your body. So not only does it help with like nausea and upset stomach and, you know, bloating, but it also helps to control the level of cortisol, which for most of us who know this, excess cortisol is excess stress. And then that's going to also manifest into anxiety or more anxiety. Turmeric, so the compound found in turmeric curcumin It's actually been studied for its role in helping to promote not only brain health, but also to help prevent anxiety disorders, which is so incredible because it helps to, again, decrease that inflammation that's happening in the body. Green tea. So whether you like just like regular green tea or if you like matcha, that's also fantastic. There is an amino acid called theanine, 
that works on the the hypothalamus to help release dopamine and serotonin that helps to combat anxiety, which is also a really fun fact too. Fatty fish, so something like salmon or mackerel or anchovies or sardines, Mm. those are also going to be really important to help promote brain health. And when we promote brain health, we're also supporting the neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin that can, again, have those really nice calming relaxing properties to the body as well. Another food that I love are almonds. Almonds have a really significant source of vitamin E, which again have been studied to help prevent anxiety as well too. So those are some of my like favorite foods that I like to just like weave into my uh, diet as far as being anti-inflammatory. There's also herbs that are super helpful. So things like lavender chamomile which we know to be like both of them super calming and relaxing lavender is also really neuroprotective as well too which is really fascinating saffron which i grew up having in all my dishes as an you know iranian background but saffron also helps to address insomnia which is pretty cool Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who have either anxiety or depression tend to also have sleep troubles as well yeah so saffron's another good one kava kava is a really good one holy basil is another one as well too there's so many different herbs and adaptogens that are also really helpful but with adaptogens always you just want to be careful as far as which ones you're utilizing because if you're on medication it can have some adverse reactions to it as well but yeah focusing on foods that are anti-inflammatory so fruits and vegetables and whole grains and fatty fish and lean protein and Herbs and spices, those are all going to be super supportive and helping to help reduce those symptoms of anxiety. You are so smart. You are just so <laughs> smart. Like, yeah, because it's, it, you're not just saying foods, you're explaining the why behind it. God, there's so much in there. So I, I'm kind of going to just like bounce back my understanding of it, which yeah. is, and I really like that a lot of the the things that you mentioned, like, it's not complicated. It's Mostly spices or smaller things and then like just making sure you're eating good stuff most of the time. And that's something that can kind of be woven into what you're doing rather than like a full-blown re-up like of a new diet like keto, which don't get me started on. I'm sure you have feelings. I know. know. No offense if anyone's listening to or listening and, uh, you know, practices keto. But listen, I love cheese just as much as anyone else. (laughs) I do. But I also love bread. And I keep actually, and you know what's interesting? What I was going to say is, from my understanding, it's like weaving healthier or more mindful options. I don't always love the word healthier, but like being more mindful about what you're putting into your body. You can do that in small steps. And then there's like this deeper layer of just knowing yourself and it really knowing your body. So when you were mentioning celiac or people who like can't have gluten. And this is partially because of my disordered eating for so long. I was convinced that I just couldn't have gluten. Come to find out, I actually run really fucking well on carbs. And the the healthier I feel is actually when I'm eating carbs, which is lovely for me. You know, listen, my hormonal breakout was also because there there is still a line. There is still excess. It is not French fries so much as it's complex carbohydrates. And sharing that because there's so much like it, new nutritional information out there that it's so easy to just get swept into like, well, this person said this thing and like this is supposed to be good for that. And so it sounds like, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it sounds like check-ins, like wellness check-ins, whether that's with a coach or a doctor or, you know, some sort of practitioner to actually like have professional outside guidance so that it's not just you speculating. I feel like that's pretty important, no? Absolutely. I mean, that 
that bio-individuality is so important and nutrition is not a, you know, a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. Yes, there are foods that are overall going to be inflammatory or not so supportive for many people, like excess sugar is not necessarily going to be the best option for everyone. But fruits and vegetables are great for everybody. And I want everyone to eat fruits and vegetables. But again, like I mentioned with gluten and like you just brought up as well, too, it's going to be harmful for some people, especially if you have autoimmunity and you're really symptomatic, especially if you're still symptomatic from your autoimmunity. Removing those foods just for the meantime until your symptoms come to a place where they are in remission is going to be really supportive. But I mean, I myself, I've been in remission of symptoms for like five years now, maybe longer. And I will have a slice of sourdough every so often. And my body is fine. I don't react negatively to it. I don't eat it every day, but I don't react to it the same way that I did like 11 years ago when I was first diagnosed, when I like could not even smell it. I would like blow up. So, but that comes with me also healing my gut and taking care of all of the diagnostic imbalances that were happening in my body. So yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a bio-individual approach as well too. The same thing with all these diet trends that are going around, things like keto and paleo, this and you know, I don't even know. There's so many of them that I can't even keep track of them. But keto for I just want to touch on keto for two seconds only because it's actually kind of fascinating. So I don't even know if you know this. A lot of people don't know this. Keto was originally created or brought into play to help address epileptic children oh i did not know that yeah yeah so it's really fascinating once you kind of like read the history of it i don't know if you want to like go into a google dive after this call but it's very fascinating and keto is actually incredibly beneficial for some people for some people studies have only shown that it to be really beneficial for men and for postmenopausal women So if you're not in either one of those two categories or, you know, um, descriptions, it hasn't been proven yet in studies to be really beneficial for you. So especially for women, especially for menstruating women or for menstruating humans, carbohydrates are so, so, so important, especially for hormone imbalancing. And I want everyone to eat carbohydrates because they're so, you know, fruits and vegetables are carbohydrate. People think when they think of carbohydrates, they think of bread, they think of pasta, but Fruit has carbohydrates, vegetables have carbohydrates, nuts and seeds have carbohydrates. So it's kind of like everything. It's a full spectrum. But again, it really comes down to like, what is your individual goal? What are your individual, you know, what's your health history? What are you kind of focusing on? What What's the status of your body right now? And then creating a nutrition plan that makes the most sense for you at that point in your life. And then addressing it, like you said, doing check-ins and addressing it kind of as like the journey continues to see like, can you incorporate this food now? Can you, you know, play around with the levels here and there and then um, listening to your body to see how it's yeah, responding? That, that's fascinating. I, I did not know that about keto. You know, I am yeah. shocker because I tried every diet under the sun when I was struggling with disordered eating. What I, during it, but especially in hindsight, found to be really unsupportive was, yes, I was losing weight at least short term, I I absolutely plateaued, but I was not holistically healthy because healthy to me is, am I taking care of my mind? Am I treating myself with respect? Am I, do I feel content? And even if we just looked at food alone, I'm not content when you say I can't have something. And so again, this was during a period of disordered eating, but it fostered this like wild fear of fruit. 
for a really long time where even when I was not keto for however many months I attempted that afterwards, there was like, there was an aftershadow of like, uh, do I need the banana? Is that going to add too much sugar to my day? And it's like, no, no, you, I now understand I function way better when I have sugar, just in right, carb sugar, now to use your language. Right. Not like Pop Rocks, <laughs> although love me some Pop Rocks. And I actually want to talk to you about uh, treating yourself because I know we've had that conversation offline. But I also didn't have to deal with the, like when I released myself from all of these food rules and I started practicing like nourishment of mind, body, and soul, I stopped having the guilt. Like, oh, I had the banana. Now I'm fat. I had the the you know, six strawberries, like my whole diet is thrown off. My body chemistry is thrown off. It's like, whoa, Amanda, this is no longer yeah. about food. This is about control. And so that that's really why I, I found keto specifically not supportive is one fake goal of losing weight, which was already rooted in something that, that was imbalanced, that might have been right. accomplished, but I was actually losing out so much more in the mind, body, soul connection of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of these diets are, they're not sustainable. Yeah. They're not ones that you can stay on for the rest of your life, especially keto. You don't want to do that for the rest of your life. It's even like AIP, like the one that, it, the yeah. autoimmune protocol diet is, the, it's a diet that those with autoimmunity tend to go on, but you don't want to be on that one for more than like <sighs> the most like six months, but even that's kind of pushing oh, yeah. it. And I hear, I hear people that are on it for like six, nine years and they're like, but I still have all my autoimmune symptoms. I'm like, well, imagine how many food groups that you've just removed or how many food items you've removed and you might have a lot of deficiencies now. So a lot of them are not ones that you want to stay on for a long time. They're not sustainable, which is why creating creating an, a balance between all food groups, between all types of food, even the ones that some might deem as being bad foods, like a cookie mm -hmm. or a bowl of ice cream. That's where the true like point of healing or point of transformation really yeah. comes from. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this idea of treating yourself because I know you and I share the same mindset, which is like, if you want the cookie, have the cookie. And like, yes. So, yeah. so really, I think what I'm getting at is like, so we've had some discussions about, is it treating yourself or is it intuitive eating? Or like, how do you look at, you know, the quote unquote bad foods as deemed so by diet culture? Yes. So I, the original term that everyone is so used to is like, yeah, days, yeah, yeah. cheat food, weekends. And the same, like, we talked about language in the beginning of this conversation too, and how that plays a huge part and how that's so important. But I, I realized like through my practice and through working with clients, like, they would so often use like, I, okay, I kind of cheated a little bit or like I had a cheat day yesterday. And it's like the second they even say the word, they already feel yeah. guilty without even telling me what it is that they ate versus I'm like, I'll stop them. The second I hear them say like, I cheated or I had a cheat day. I'm like, you treated yourself. You had a treat day. You had a treat food. Like you, you had something that you really in love have. And then the second I say that, it's like the light enters their body and they're like, oh, that feels so much better than to say, what's it called? Cheated or I cheat food. I'm like, yeah, I know, because it creates a much lighter, loving relationship to that food. And it's funny because if I have a client tell me like, okay, well, I treated myself yesterday or I cheated yesterday, whatever they decide to use, and I had a chocolate chip cookie, I'll be like, how, I was like, how was the cookie? Yeah. <laughs> so, more about it. Like, 
Did you have it with ice cream? Did you like, was it warm? Was it gooey? Was it like extra chunky? Like, I want to know all the details because I'm also just like a foodie. But yeah, having that that relationship amongst food and seeing it as seeing all food as fuel because all food is fuel. That is when you create a really healthy relationship with food. So whether you want to call it treat food, whether you want to call it intuitive eating, whatever you want to call it or deem it, it really comes down to having food freedom and being okay with having a cookie on a Tuesday at 4 p.m. because you wanted to have a cookie on a Tuesday at 4 p.m. and not being like, oh, no, I can only have sugar items on Saturdays because that's my cheat day. By the time Saturday comes around, you're probably going to be ravenous and then you're going to eat more than you ever intended on it. And it's not coming from a place of like true intention or true desire of wanting to have the food. It's because you know that like, oh, Saturdays are the only days that I can have these things. So I have to eat everything on Saturday and then nothing again until the week later. Yeah, like that's that already is like I have so many questions about like that already. So many areas where we can like dig a little bit deeper in that. But when we're able to create a sense of food freedom, and so if you want to have a chocolate chip cookie on a Tuesday at 4 p.m., by all means, have yeah. a chocolate chip cookie on a Tuesday at 4 p.m. Like, it's not going it, to, that one cookie is not going to set you back so much so in your goals. It's actually going to help you to move forward in your goals because it's going to help nurture and nourish that relationship that you have. With totally. You. I mean, this, and we're not going to do it right now, but this really, this <laughs> concept of restriction all restriction yeah. ever does. I mean, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm just going to get into it a little bit. I can't help it. In most cases, hyper restriction of anything only creates a deep desire for rebellion. I went to Catholic school mm -hmm. my entire life. We're not going to unpack that right now, but it's restriction central. And yeah. then in my early to mid 20s, it was rebellion central. I mean, I was trying to rebel even when I was in high school. But we see that you see this with uh, helicopter parents and their kids and what winds up happening. Like restriction across the board typically winds up doing the equal and opposite. Binge eating, you know, right. it, it, whatever. I'm not going to get into all of these facets because then we both won't shut up, but I, I think we all catch the drift here is it's not so much about restriction as it is intuition. And I love what you said about like, oh, tell me about the cookie. Was it warm and gooey? And because was, that was something, and maybe you'll identify with this because we share that, that old need that maybe still rears its head from time to time, that need to go fast. And that was certainly present in my eating where it was like, I would just scarf stuff down and be like, did I even like that? Like, I, I don't know if I even liked that. And the cool thing about food freedom, which I love that you use that, that language, is it gives you this space to actually enjoy what you're eating more. So like when I, like I used to never be able to keep ice cream in the fridge because I didn't trust myself because restriction creates a lack of trust. Now I have like four different flavors of ice cream in my fridge. I have a selection and it's like, ooh, do I want the Marionberry blah, blah from salt and straw or birthday cakes? Yeah. And then when I have it, I'm like, oh, this is so good. This is the best. And like the word that comes up is just like luxuriating in it. And it's like, yes, this is like food is meant to be enjoyed. Like I get to be human and taste this and it can feel good. And like, I don't know about you, but I feel like when I was talking about this actually earlier this morning, we can connect to a positive emotion, whether it's gratitude or just like 
yeah, being in the experience of tasting what you are eating, that positive emotion tends to outweigh any of the anxiety or the guilt or the whatever that comes along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about the other day where I was like sitting and eating a bowl of ice cream and I was like, oh, every single one of these bites is just, it's just so good. And I like to talk about when somebody is choosing to sit down to eat a food. So I, I like to say that eating is a form of meditation. And I think that we've really lost touch as a society of slowing ourselves down to really enjoy eating. It's become something that's just on a to-do list that I know I have to have lunch today and I have to have dinner later. I could either just see them as that and cross it off my list or I can be like, ooh, I get to have lunch today and I get to have dinner today. Like, what am I going to make? What's the vibe? Mm. What kind of flavors am I going to be having? Like, and I am very, I, I like to also teach my clients to just sit down and really enjoy the art of eating their food. So putting distractions away, maybe sitting outside if that's, if that's available for you, putting your fork down between each and every single bite so you could really sit there and chew through your bite and feel all the different flavors and taste everything and just be really present with when you are choosing to eat, whether that it's a salad or whether that is a bowl of ice cream. I don't care what kind of food it is, but really dropping into that state of full mindfulness when you are eating because like I said it is a form of meditation and when you're able to create that connection with something like eating that seems so simple but it really is something so beautiful and something that we take for granted it's that's when a lot of that healing of the relationship between yourself and food can come from yeah absolutely and that's something that I suggest to clients who are struggling to like do a sit-down meditation is like Use cooking mm -hmm. as the meditation. Use eating as the meditation because it's this beautiful opportunity to like just be in the experience and slow down for a little bit. So I, I absolutely love that. So <laughs> yes, before we close out for today, are there any final, I, I mean, you and I could go on for forever, but do you have any final <laughs> thoughts or anything that you want to share with listeners? I, I want to also mention some like tangible yes. takeaway things that you can do to help reduce whether you want to call it stress. We can call it stress. With stress, we like we said, is an umbrella term. And it helps to improve brain neuroplasticity. So the brain has, the brain structure is neuroplastic. It has neuroplasticity, meaning that it can modify its structure and its function when it perceives or experiences a type of change. That change can come from chronic stress or acute stress. That change can also come from the opposite, joy, happiness, whatever that might look like. But there are ways that you can actually help to really improve the neuroplasticity of your brain and help to also build new neural pathways, which is pretty incredible. One of which we've talked about, you know, we've touched on a few times here is meditation. So finding a way to meditate, finding a meditation practice that's really supportive for you. It doesn't have to be sitting with your legs crossed, eyes closed, hands on the palm, you know, that's fantastic. If you can do that, great. But for me, like your meditation looks different every single day. Like for me, it might be going on a walk. Like you said, it might be cooking. It might be, you know, watering my plants. Like it can be something so simple. It doesn't have to be the 
the way that you deem meditation to be in your mind. So meditation, learning new skills. So and I know you you are the same way. Like we love to educate ourselves and we love to like sign up for courses and take different courses and certifications. But learning something new is also a really amazing way of helping to improve your brain's neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So whether it's taking a course online or le- learning a new language, like even just downloading one of these like language apps and doing like 10 minutes a day of like learning a new language, but learning new skills is fantastic. And I highly recommend everyone to just practice doing something every day to do that. Um, movement, physical activity is another way of, of as well. So whether it's walking or hiking or jumping or whatever, just moving your body every day, even if it is, again, for like 10, 15 minutes, it's, it's going to do huge wonders for you because it helps you get out of your head more into your body. And then that actually helps to ironically then connect the mind and the body. And then the last one, which I think is okay to say now because we're like coming out of our pandemic. Are you going to say hugs, people? Um, it's, it's, well, I was going to say like hugging and social interaction. <laughs> yes. Full send. So being around people that you really love and being social and going out. And if it's not, even like for me, like if I don't have plans to see a friend like on a day, I'll even just like go to a coffee shop and just like being in a room with other human bodies around me, like I feed off of that too. I'm like, ooh, even this still feels good. Even if it's just me saying hi to the barista and then leaving, like that's even still, you know, feeding my body in a really beneficial way. So yeah, and also hugging because we love hugging. Yeah. So human <laughs> connection, I mean. It's so funny about, those are yeah. all fantastic tips. I really like the learning new skill ones. I feel like that's not always yeah. brought up in these conversations. That's really, really valid. I love the the coffee shop note. Because, you know, I live alone. I love living alone. I cannot stress. If you want to live alone, try it. It's incredible. And when you don't have coworkers, you have colleagues, but not coworkers, it is so important for my mental health that I go to cafes when possible and work. And what's cool about things like that is you can plan for where you go or maybe even plan for what you're going to order or whatever. But you can't plan for the chance encounters or like the, the funny little joke that you and the barista exchange or the cute jo- dog that walks by or whatever. And all of those, although they may be small, all of those little experiences can provide pops of joy. And the more joy we mm-hmm. can bring into our lives, especially in the small moments, the better set up we are to then look at some of the more difficult stuff to do the diagnostics right. on mind and body and then to follow through, especially with, well, I guess, especially with both is mind and body to do the follow through and to commit to your growth. All of that becomes a lot easier when you're grounded in this commitment to finding joy. So I, I love, love, love that you shared that. Yeah. So Niaz, before we close out for today, where can everyone find you? You can find me on uh, Instagram and TikTok at Unspoken Nutrition. And my website is unspokennutrition.com. Amazing. Guys, I cannot stress enough. She's just the best. Clearly, you've heard her talk. She knows what she's talking about. Again, I also just know from knowing her for way longer than I realized at this point, she's (laughs) another person who's in her work. We've had a couple of people on the podcast that I've also kind of really drilled that home to you guys is when you are looking for anyone that you're consuming information from, on the internet, in person, as a coach, mentor, guide, whatever. It's so important that they're, the word that's coming to mind is real, which I hate that I was about to say that, but like, it's true. It's, it's important that they're real and that they they are taking care of themselves. Uh, Niaz is, is certainly one of those people. So 
Thank you, my love. It was so great to have you. Thank you for having me. You're going to come on again because I'm sure we're going to have more questions. So we'll do that when it happens. And we will see the rest of you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Anxiety Talks with Amanda Huggins. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe or pay it forward by sharing the link with a friend. For one-on-one coaching, online workshops, and more, visit www.amandahugginscoaching.com or say hi. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at It's Amanda Huggins. We'll see you in the next episode.